I couldn't get a partner to go back, so I went back on my own. So the following week, I was back there at the same spot, but this time solo without a rope. Um, and I had the same thing going up and down, dry mouth, total fear. But just reaching that point where the desire to go up was stronger than the fear. <laughs> Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 91 with Dave McLeod. It's hard to summarise who and what Dave is, but if you had to condense it into three words, he's a climber, a filmmaker and an author. Dave was born in Glasgow, but now lives in the Highlands where he spends as much of his time as he can climbing in one way or another. What separates Dave from most climbers is his ability as an all-rounder. He spends just as much time adventurous traditional rock climbing at an elite level as he does winter climbing, bouldering, sport climbing, and running in the mountains of Scotland. He's incredibly well-travelled, but as time has gone by, Dave has found that Scotland gives him practically all he needs, and as you'll hear in this episode, he feels like there are multiple lifetimes of unclimbed rock to work with. We also touch on environmentalism in the Highlands, and how his outdoor pursuits have led Dave to a wider understanding of the world around him. Finally, and before we start, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do leave us a review on iTunes. They make a huge difference to our ability to reach a wider audience. Okay, over to Dave McLeod. Can you just start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm Dave McLeod. I'm 43 years old. I come from Glasgow in Scotland, but I live in the Highlands now. And I've been a professional climber all my adult life. I do... Lots of rock climbing, uh, ice climbing of all different types, uh, mainly in Scotland, although I have travelled a fair bit over the world as well. But I guess I'm known for my hard new routes in Scotland on, on rock and on ice. Nice. And can you talk a bit about how you got into climbing and what life was like as a kid? Sure. I think that's, that's well, I guess it's interesting for anyone who gets into the outdoors, like um, what their trigger was. I always find this interesting hearing it from other people as well. So I grew up in inner city Glasgow, right in the centre of the city, proper urban jungle, you know, and um, no one in my family was into the outdoors. I didn't see my dad really when I was young, so I didn't have anyone taking me into places like that. But one thing I always remember um, was getting moved while my house was getting major repairs done, and I got moved by the council to this block of flats when I was like, I must have been eight or ten we were on the 16th floor and I just always, it was April, I think. And I just always remember the view out across the north end of the city and seeing all the mountains covered in, in snow, like a really level snow line. And just seeing the whole horizon of mountains just beyond Glasgow. And that, that did stick with me. I was like, what's that place of mountains? Just, it's, it's distant, but it's obviously not that distant. Um, but I never really sort of did anything with that thought for a long time. It wasn't until when I was, I think, maybe 12 or 13, I'd moved house to the edge, the north edge of Glasgow. And I, I didn't really know even the streets around my house. By that time, I had a bike and I was cycling to school. And I just started to explore my bike. Um, and I started to go, find myself outside of Glasgow, into the countryside and seeing these hills. Um, and I just always remember also one day when I was off school, looking through an atlas of Scotland, it's like a road atlas, but it had all these named peaks. 
And then I was looking at, oh, where did I actually cycle? And I was like, oh, there's like peaks on the map that were quite close to where I cycled. And I was like, oh, I think that was that hill I saw. And I just had a kind of notion to go and climb them. So I'd like one day going and climbing a, a hill, just hill walking on my own. And then I, I quite liked that. And I went to my local library, got a book at the library on the Southern Highlands, just the hills north of Glasgow. And in, there was an appendix at the back of the book that had rock climbs at Dumbarton Rock, which is, um, it's like a volcanic plug with a castle on top. Mary Queen of Scots was imprisoned there. Um, and it has rock climbing on the, on the cliffs outside the castle wall. And that's somewhere where I could get the train from directly to from my mum's house. So the next day I went there on the train and I walked around the corner and it's this amazing smooth overhanging wall that you see in profile. And I saw two climbers on it. And um, I just thought that they looked amazing on this smooth wall. It just looked so extreme and so just, it just looked brilliant to me. Um, so I was very sort of enamored with the sight of those climbers. And I just said to myself, whatever climb they're on, I want to do that climb. And it so happened that that was actually the hardest rock climb in Scotland at the time. So it was very, very fortunate that my first climbing goal from day one <laughs> uh, turned out to be the hardest route. Uh, it took me seven years to actually get to the stage where I could climb that route. Um, but from day one, I was always working on it. And the nice thing about Dumbarton is at the foot of the cliff, there's all these giant boulders, so you can go bouldering there. And that's where a lot of Glasgow climbers um, sort of learn their craft, really. Um, and so I just immediately started climbing there from day one on my own. You don't need any equipment to go bouldering. You just need yourself. Eventually, I had a pair of rock shoes and a chalk bag, but that's it. Um, and I just learned to climb. Uh, and, I, you know, I got used to failing on climbs. I didn't mind that. I was used to failing at sports. I was terrible at sports. didn't like them. Um, so failing on things was not a problem. I was never scared of that. And in bouldering, it's not a bother either. You climb a couple of moves off the ground, you jump off. It's not a big deal. Um, but I liked working the, the, the climbs out. And, and I immediately started to think of holds and moves and how they fitted together. Like if I was going to get one move higher on that climb, the holds are right in front of you, like only a meter off the ground. Would you take that hold with your right hand? Then what would you do with your foot? Where would you place your foot? How does it work together? And it's that piecing together the puzzle of rock climbing movement that I started to really value from the start. And that really is what you need if you want to be a good rock climber. Um, so you've got, it's a perfect kind of, almost like a laboratory to get good at climbing. You've got the boulders there to learn the craft of how to move on rock. But right above you on the wall above, there's that hard route, the hardest route in Scotland, there's a route called Requiem. And it's just there in your face. It's always reminding you, I'm here. Your goal is right there in plain sight. So you're always thinking, am I ready? No, I'm not ready. Am I ready? No, I'm not ready. It's brilliant. Perfect place to progress. And I think it might be worth asking you to describe that place in more detail. Yeah. You know, it's a quirky place. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, often if people think of climbing in Scotland, they would think of beautiful mountains and um, you know, Scot the Scottish Highlands are full of beautiful mountains uh, that I'm still exploring to this day. Um, but the Barton Rock is a very, very unusual place in, in terms of Scottish climbing. It's semi-urban in its location. I always remember there was a book of that route I was talking about that was my first climbing goal, this route Requiem. It was first climbed by a guy called Dave Cuthbertson in the early 1980s. And there was a book of photos of rock climbing in Britain 
that used to be for sale in W. Smith, you know, and I had a copy of it. And there was a photo of Dave on the first ascent of that route. And behind, right behind him, you can see all the, the docks of this massive sawmill that was there. So it was like an industrial um, port, basically, that was right beside it on the Clyde. But it's immediately beside the town of Dumbarton, which is like a quite a deprived industrial town. It probably got even more deprived at the end of the 80s when a lot of the big industries left Clydeside in Glasgow. Um, and so Dumbarton Rock itself, where the climbs are, it's almost like a mini park in a way, um, but not a nicely kind of cropped park with nice cut lawns. <laughs> it's where all the local youths and adults go to escape, often to just to just drink and have fun uh, in the evening, which is fine. Um, actually, when I used to go climbing there with other friends from school, I used to go down with beers as well and 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 drink there in the evening because we did when we were teenagers. Um, so it's a place where the locals go to to have fun, um, and sometimes that you know the the locals are are a little bit wild, but they were always very friendly, um, but and always very entertaining. I mean, Glasgow, to people that, that don't know it well, sometimes Glasgow has a bit of a reputation for being a little bit of a scary place or a scary city. Um, it is deprived. Uh, and, and yes, there, are, there is a bit of that in the culture, but it's also very friendly. People are, are friendly, and especially if you know how to talk to them. <laughs> and the, I, always, I climbed the Dumbarton Rock for years, and there's always a strange dynamic between the climbers and the locals who go to hang out there because we call them the, the NEDs, you know, the non-educated delinquents, that's what it stands for, but yeah, it's just like, we rather call them NEDs or BAMs and they just come to the rock to drink and they, they sometimes noise you up and have a bit of banter with you. And I always thought that in the world of a NED, there's two categories of people. There's either people that can beat them up or people that they can beat up. And they never quite know which category climbers fit into. <laughs> <laughs> because climbers are kind of wiry, but they climb cliffs, so they might be quite hard. So they just have that bit of respect, so they're kind of testing you sometimes in their banter. Um, and they, they never quite know what to make of you. So it always made for kind of good back and forth entertainment. And quite often they were just interested in what you were doing, you know, and just wanted to swing around on your ropes or, or, or ask you what you were up to, you know. And they, they, they loved it, yeah. And, and you also got older guys that would come down there to fish or just, just to drink. On um, one of the boulders, there was a steep cave that was uh, unclimbed, you know, and it was a, a project. I guess other climbers had looked at it. No one had climbed it. I spent a lot, maybe a, a winter or two in that cave, just trying to climb this line out of the cave. But it, there was always a kind of fire pit in the cave from locals coming to hang out and just have a party there on a Saturday night. W one day I turned up there to have a session on this on this claim, and another guy turned up the, ten minutes later and he had a plastic bag with ten cans of special brew. <laughs> and over the course of about two hours while I tried this claim, he drank all ten cans <laughs> and told me his life story, which was tragic. And you know he was just going to spend his day and. And he was delighted to have someone to talk to. And it was very, very nice talking to him as well. Yeah, so that's the kind of vibe that was at Dumbarton Rock. So, yeah, not your not your usual place, really, for Scottish climbing. It's quite interesting, <laughs> though. It's a bit of a segue, but, like, you talk, you know, 
when people talk about traveling for climbing, they often mm -hmm. talk about the cultures they find yes, body yes. rum or wherever they go. But yes, you found that in your home city. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, because a lot of places I've I've climbed since. You know, you do spend a lot of time in total solitude. I mean, yeah, you, you travel to different countries. You do, you know, you meet locals, you meet people. Um, but sometimes it's not quite the same, especially if you're meeting people in the context of travel. You know, it's like the person that um, you jump in the taxi with to take you to where you're staying or something like that, or the place, the person that works at where you're staying or the person that you go, you meet when you go out for a meal. But this is kind of different. <laughs> you know, you're meeting people that uh, you, you wouldn't normally. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, th those are your people, right? That's home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and um, uh, Glasgow is a very multicultural city. So uh, actually in... In my primary school, when I was, you know, before, when I still lived right in the centre of Glasgow, that was really different again. That was a very multicultural area, and the, the language of the playgrounds when I was a kid was Mandarin and Punjabi, and there was only two white people in my class. Um, and so I learned a lot about other cultures through that school because it was full of other cultures from uh, different parts, mainly different parts of Asia, uh, just because that, that particular corner of Glasgow had a lot of people settled in it. Um, so I, I went from that to then a school where, uh, in the north end of Glasgow, where it was much more sort of well-off Scottish families from well-educated backgrounds, and I saw a completely different side of Glasgow again. Um, so, but then again, a lot of my family were from part the more deprived areas of Glasgow, uh, so I was well used to sort of, yeah, you know, seeing people from that background, and you know, yeah. So it's an interesting place. Do you yeah, miss it? Mix. Um, I, I miss it and I still go back there from time to time. Um, so I, I still like the area. I still love Glasgow and I still visit there because I still got family there. Um, and I, you know, I, st I was studying there several times actually, in, including quite recently. Uh, so I still spend a lot of time in the, in the city in general. Uh, Dumbarton Rock in particular, uh, I miss mainly for the rock. Uh, the Rock is very a very special place. Um, I, I still think it's a, a brilliant place to kind of pit yourself against to try and master it because there are so many climbs there that go up to a high standard, but there are also the variety of them. Even if you're a very, very good rock climber, it's very hard to climb all of them. Oh, I don't know if anyone has actually done that, maybe apart from myself. I was going to say, you yeah, have, yeah. Yeah, and, and I remember thinking that, like, if you can climb everything that's been done here, then you can probably go anywhere in the world and climb well. And, yeah, I think that having that attitude to it, that, that was my goal, was to try and master climbing here, and that would be a good platform to then go on to do other things. That, that stood me in good stead. Yeah, because you are an all-rounder, aren't you? And it's quite a rare thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I do, like, um, traditional mountain rock climbing where you're placing your own protection um so it's potentially dangerous if you if you fall um i also do winter climbing on snow and ice and you know mixed climbing on snowed up rock um, i also do sport rock climbing protected by bolts and a bit of bouldering the only thing i don't really do is indoor competitive climbing uh, so yeah having a, a a broad base of climbing stuff rock climbing fundamentally is a movement sport you need to be able to understand how the holds fit together, how to move your body to make the sequence work, to use the least amount of strength to, to move through that sequence. 
so that yeah, that's that's so fundamental to it. So any rock type that forces you to learn good technique and is and is quite unforgiving, because the thing is the rock at the Martin is very smooth, uh, dense basalt with very little friction. That's very unforgiving. If you if you put a bit too much pressure on your foot, it'll slip. Whereas if you are climbing on a rough uh, rock type like sandstone or gritstone, you can get away with a little being a little bit more sloppy with your footwork or even your hand placements because you are literally sticking to the rock. So you have a little bit more wiggle room really with respect to technique. But learning that precision of your of your movement and sensitivity to what your hands and feet are doing is so key. And I just think it's really helped me with my climbing ever since. And that um, seems like it's what lured you in. Yeah, yeah, it was like a problem solving. I, I, I always remember once, like, you know, I didn't really realize how much you, you, I was getting out of that aspect of climbing, the, the problem solving aspect, until I remember one day I was uh, coming out of lectures in uni and I was walking down the street to the train station and I was just thinking of the moves on a climb on the boulders that I'd been trying. And it just suddenly hit me of like, oh, if I move that foot, then put my heel there then do that, then it'll work. And, you know, I wasn't standing in front of the climb, I wasn't trying it, but I was, like, holding that that arrangement of holes in my head and I could figure it out when I was somewhere completely different, went back to the climb, tried what I thought would work, and it worked. And I was like, that's amazing. That's I just got so much out of that. Um, and I didn't really realise how much I was getting out of it until later on. Um, so how did it progress from Dumbarton? Um, well, I mean... Right from the start of my climbing, I was going further afield into the Scottish mountains. Um, just when I was, you know, just an apprentice in climbing and, and doing doing easy climbs. So, you know, I was going out in winter and climbing snow gullies. Um, and mainly on my own. And I had no gear. I had a pair of boots and I had a roofer's hammer that I found in my mum's loft. That was my sex. I just kind of sharpened that up and I was using that. And... Um, and then eventually I had had a, a rope, like a borrowed rope. Um, and y y the climbing shop in Glasgow had this harness where you could actually buy it in two parts. So you could buy the waist belt and the leg loops separately. <laughs> so I couldn't afford both, so I bought the waist belt. So I had a rope and a, and a waist belt harness and I had two carabiners and a sling. Um, so we went winter climbing and... Um, so just just use that gear and, uh, and you know a bealy anchor was just like stuffing the ice axe into a crack however way until you got it to stick kind of thing yeah so but all of that stuff i mean it sort of seems like it's the classic thing where you might if you saw someone on the hill doing that you'd be like come on sort yourself out get some proper equipment and do it properly but well i didn't have the opportunity to get proper equipment i was doing the best as i could at the time but that's like it's, it gave me Many good things that have kept me safe in the hills and allowed me to climb well in the hills, which is a sense of self-reliance, first and foremost, um, and the ability to improvise and use your gear uh, to the maximum. <laughs> you know, I could make an, an anchor out of, out of an ice axe in many ways, um, and I knew well how to move on snow without crampons, and often you find yourself in the hills without crampons when really you ought to have them. Sometimes they're even in your rucksack and you just haven't put them on yet. Um, so all of those things were still good and I'm glad I learned to climb that way um, uh, so as I was progressing from doing that 
I got used to that, that self-reliance aspect. I just can't overstate how important that is. Um, it made me, made me good at leading once I did claim with partners and ropes. You know, you have a leader in a second. The leader takes a lot of the danger um, and a lot of the decisions to be made. Like, can we go on? How do we protect the claim? Um, the, the route finding, all those aspects. Um, so I just got so used to that. Uh, so the idea of, of following someone else and uh, was just didn't register. I didn't know anyone who claimed. So I got very used to um, not going any higher than I could safely go and being able to climb back down if I couldn't get higher. And I did that a lot. Climbed halfway up mixed routes, couldn't go any higher, climbed back down. <laughs> Climbing back down routes is an underrated skill, even at a very high level in, in rock and ice climbing. Um, it's got me out of trouble many a time. And it allows you to go into situations that are a lot harder, a lot harder climbing. You can keep going up because you know you can climb down up to a pretty high level. I can down climb almost as hard as I can climb. <laughs> that, again, yeah. I, I suspect that's very rare. Yeah, I suppose it is, yeah. But I think the, the very best, especially the best trad climbers in the world do share that skill because I think that particularly with on-site climbing where you're just um, starting at the bottom, trying to do the route without any other prior knowledge or having tried it before, then it's just such an important skill. If The harder you push, the more you have to be aware of tactics that allow you to, to take the next step and try, the, try harder routes, and that's just a huge one. It's being able to probe a bit higher, see how it is, gain a bit of familiarity, and gain a bit of confidence. But maybe the first time you go a few moves higher, you, you just feel out of your depth. And the ability to just scuttle back down to somewhere that's a bit more comfortable, it just allows you to keep pushing on. Whereas if you have to tackle all of that in one go, it just is too much. Yeah. Yeah. And so when did it change for you? When did you meet other climbers? When did you start having partnerships? Yeah. Uh, well, in the main, um, I, I, a friend at school uh, was kind of aware that I was going out in mountains and he was interested in joining me. So I just started climbing with a friend at school and I, I, I kind of I kind of knew a little bit about climbing, but we, we kind of just progressed together. Um, I can't even remember the first time I, I climbed with an experienced climber. I think I was already like climbing quite well by the time I did. Uh, but I did also just meet other climbers at Dunbarn Rock and see them in action and gradually get involved with people. Um, but I was very shy, so I didn't really. So I, I wouldn't be the type of person who's, who would say like, "Oh, where are you going at the weekend? Can I can I join you?" <laughs> I didn't really do that. Uh, so it wasn't until I was already doing hard stuff that then I started to form other partnerships. Yeah. So when you sharpened the hammer that you found in the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the shed, how old were you? Um, Fourteen. That maybe fifteen. Yeah. I mean, that's your normal, obviously, but that is. That's pretty out there. Well, it, it seems like that now, but you know how I was talking earlier about um, friend Dave Cuthbertson who did the first ascent of that route requiem at Dumbarton Rock. I mean, I, I was asking him about his start in climbing and uh, he was out all over the hills rock climbing in Scotland and, and doing Monroe's in summer and winter when he was between 10 and 12. But did so. he have somebody who took him? Well, he, he was in the boys' brigade, but... As far as I as far as I can remember, he was saying he was just going out with his other pals, and they were just like hitching from Edinburgh up to the Highlands and, and going climbing and just dossing in caves and 
whatever they they could really. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, it wasn't it wasn't that that unusual. Um, yeah. So that's, I guess you had a, a lot of freedom. Yeah. I, it's funny. I've got a ten year old daughter myself, and uh, I can't imagine her saying, "Dad, I'm I'm away off to the northwest, or I'm away over to Sky to go and do a climb in the Coolin or something like that." <laughs> I'd be like. Uh, I'm coming with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or no, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it. Yeah. You're just not ready. Yeah. And I think it's like one thing I really wanted to talk to you about. And I think we talked about this in 2014 in Italy. Because mm-hmm. I remember it feeling it was quite a powerful thing you said around permission. Like you, I've always felt like people like me can't climb new routes or we can't do these mm. things. And mm-hmm. You just seem like you went, oh, I'm going to get into winter climbing now, so I'm going to take this hammer and I'm going to go and do it on my own. Yeah, yeah. How how did you, well, where do you think that mentality comes from and how did you take it into new routing? I think it's just pure force of motivation. I thought about this a lot, actually, and I've asked a lot of other good climbers about this. Like, um, it exists at all levels. It's like, what, what gets you to the point where you're like, I'm going to try and climb this mountain in winter or... Like you see something in a film that's... Let's say you see someone climbing some hard north face in the Alps in a film. How do you go from like never having climbed to going, I just want to do that? And it's just like, you just have no skills to go and do it, but you you just decide that you are going to get them and that's it, you're just going to do it. And I think it's just this pure force of motivation. You have that, that's the first step. And then you just solve the problems one by one. You make a probe. You go, right, okay, what's the first problem you run into? You solve that. You move on to the next one and so on and so on. Um, so I, I think that's what it comes down to for me. I just had to do it. I just was so motivated. So I was reading about the hard climbs that had been done in Scotland. And, yeah, I just really connected with that scene and uh, that vision of um, hard rock climbers doing hard climbs. And I'd seen that with my own eyes the first time I went climbing. And I just was like, yeah, I just, I just want a part of that. And so immediately I was just like, well, how do I get there? What do I need? Well, well, I need to know how to climb. And then it was like, well, I need to know some rope work. Once I had equipment, it's like, well, I need to know how to use it. And I just learned by experimenting. I mean, I learned to abseil in trees, you know, just climb a tree, learn how to abseil. Um, And then I learned rope work just on the job, really. Just like, how do you do it? Um, And I learned confidence in the hills, as I say, just just by going out and just climbing as high as I could climb. And then when I felt uncomfortable, just climbing back down. And sometimes I just go up and down, up and down, up and down. I mean, it, like one, I, I always think of like, uh, you sometimes have some like defining moments where you make a big jump in progress. I remember one defining moment on a mountain called the Cobbler, which is just north of Glasgow. It's a brilliant place, just a wee mountain. It's not even a Monroe, but it has lo- lovely rocky cliffs and they come into lovely winter condition. Um, and we could get the train there from Glasgow, so we used to always do that in the winter, uh, December and January, when you know big high pressures, where it'd be, re- it'd be the whole mountain was covered in frost and snow, and uh, it'd be lovely for winter climbing. And I went with a friend from school to try um, this this mixed route, and I started up it, and he climbed up this corner, and then you had to go out across the right wall of the corner. And I remember going out there and it just felt totally out there uh, and going back and forth, back and forth and being on the move and just being, I just don't, I just, I'm out of my depth and going back down. And I just always remember really strongly walking back down, I retreated and walking back down in, in my own footsteps in the snow. 
and just it was just like I don't know it was almost like sort of seeing red like I just couldn't handle the failure it just what it wasn't like a I didn't like I didn't like failure I just I don't know I just wanted to do it so much so it's like I just I just couldn't deal with that so I couldn't think of anything else at school the whole of the, the next week but I couldn't get a partner to go back so I went back on my own so the following week I was back there at the same spot but this time solo without a rope um, and I had the same thing going up and down dry mouth total fear but just reaching that point where the desire to go up was stronger than the fear <laughs> and so <laughs> you know I felt like I could do it and I realised it was fear and then I just you know just kind of shut your brain off and do the move and then I just always remember climbing up the easier headwall and I just felt like I wasn't the same person as I was at the foot of the route. Uh, it was just like a sort of growing up thing where you realise actually you've got some competence and also if you do just push through together with the skill to be able to judge when to do that and when not to but then when it comes to the crunch having the courage to just kind of push through a, a hard move um, when you know you can do it and it is just fear that's holding you back, then, I, you know, you have that first sense of, like, I could do more, I could do more. And that was, like, really strong. So I remember like, being in a total wave of euphoria <laughs> doing that. That's magic. Well, that's flow state, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I obviously had that many times since in, in climbing. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you start falling off? And that might, just to give that some context, mm. for you know, that's quite a big thing, I think, not many... Climbers are terrified of falling mm -hmm, off, aren't they, mm -hmm, generally? Mm -hmm. Whereas you fall off a lot. Yeah, I suppose so. But I guess in part that's because I've done all the disciplines. So when I started climbing, traditional mountain rock and ice climbing was still very much like the leader must not fall. That was the old saying that went back to the Victorian times in, in climbers. And it still makes bloody good sense, <laughs> especially in winter climbing. Like I don't make a habit of falling off. Um, however... I'd come from an apprenticeship in bouldering where trying hard moves right off the ground and falling hundreds of times before you manage to do the move is the absolute norm. So that was that was kind of my start in climbing. So you kind of, you take that attitude from one discipline and you carry it into the, the next. Um, so, th I mean, there are routes on in trad climbing where you're, although you're placing your own protection, it is reasonably safe to fall off. Um, but I can't, I can't, yeah, no, actually I can <laughs> remember some faults. I did have a period where um, my physical ability to rock climb was way exceeding my ability to handle myself on trad climbs at a level that I really ought to have been doing. So my, yeah, my physical capability was way ahead. And then I had this summer, which was quite a dangerous period in my climbing. Um, I must've been about 17 or some 16, 17 where I caught up my ability and tried climbing. I just did a lot more of it over the course of a summer. And at first I was failing on really, really easy rock climbs just because I just felt like I couldn't trust the gear I was placing. I didn't understand. I put a, a wire in the crack and it's like, is that good or is it not good? I don't, I don't know. So I just hadn't, didn't have experience. And I gradually got there with that and just by doing it. Um, but with the, the confidence thing, confidence to actually fall off, you take a first fall and then a piece of gear holds and then it gives you a huge jump in confidence. Um, but I always remember having like one day where I, I, I went, I jumped four grades in the one day. I did my first, like, uh, you know, we have the, like the lower grades in trad and then you get to a certain level and 
they, they are they are E for extreme, E1. So I did my first E1, E2, E3, and E4 in the same day, <laughs> just because I was physically capable of doing it, and it just clicked how to be confident and and, and also trusting the gear. And then I was trying to do other E4s, but I wasn't really ready. I just didn't. I didn't have that broad base of experience. And I remember trying this E4. Um, I did Barton Rock. My wife Claire was bailing me, and I, I went up and I went beyond the point where I could down climb, and I didn't have good protection in, and I was just stuck. I couldn't finish the route. Couldn't climb up. Couldn't climb down. Stuck. Got more and more pumped, um, and more and more scared. And it got to the point where I was like really, really scared. Claire was crying, holding the rope at the bottom of the route, and I just remember. I had I was holding these two undercuts, small undercuts, and just watching my fingers just opening, <laughs> oh and like God. peeled off the rock, turned upside down. I remember seeing the blocks of flats in the barn upside down as I was like going head first, and just hearing all my gear just going ping, ping, ping as it all came out. And um, I had like some rubbish bits of gear, and then this one cam in a crack lower down, which I knew was not high enough to hold me from stop me from hitting the ground. So when I heard all these wires pinging out, I was like, well, I'm just gonna go fifty feet head first into the ground. And Claire just, she she was ready because she was anticipating my fall for a long time. And she just sprinted. And she took, in the time it took me to fall 50 feet, she must have taken an armful of rope plus maybe six to eight feet of running. And the rope came tight and I kind of did this little swing and the grass just took my hat off. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I just like flipped myself round the right way and stood up. And I just started laughing and that kind of adrenaline laugh and Claire just started crying. <laughs> yeah, so I had a few falls like that early on where... And then, and then you go back to the drawing board and think, can't, can't do this very often, that's obvious. So then you learn at a slower pace after that. <laughs> but I mean, having the presence of mind to run mm. in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Lucky to have a canny, yeah. canny climbing partner. For sure. Yeah, who knows the score, yeah. Yeah, and those things change. You don't, you know. I mean that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it has a big, a big effect. Yeah, but I was, yeah, I was doing other things like that at the time, like having sort of near misses, and also starting at that point, starting to climb with other um, keen, young, bold trad climbers, and also bealing other people having sort of similar sorts of near misses. So not just having them myself, but also watching other people be like, oh yeah, we can't, can't do this very often. Like, you only get so many chances to do that. <laughs> we need to take a more sensible approach. And so you just start to have a step back and have a more cautious apprenticeship. And I always think that... I, I also had a couple of accidents. Like, I broke my ankle when I was 18, I think. Um, when a hole just broke on me and I just fell not very far, but far enough to break your ankle and then, you know, have three months on crutches. And that also... I think that can sometimes be the very best thing for someone who's going to spend their life doing something that's potentially dangerous is just to get a sense like the ground is hard, don't mess with it, be cautious. And then it just makes you a safer climber for the rest of your life. That's the idea anyway. I'm still <laughs> I'm still here. Um, and I, I do feel that like 99% of my climbing is pretty safe. And the times that I've uh, put myself in danger, it's usually been for silly things like like the other winter, I was um, I was camping on top of a on the summit of a Scottish mountain uh, while I was filming, and I was setting up the tent on the edge of this cornice, and um, 
I was just like walking about the tent, but I just wasn't paying attention for a second. And I just took a step backwards and I thought I was like three meters away from the edge, but my foot actually went through the cornice. And I like remember looking down at the, the cliff and slope below and thinking like, I, yeah, I just wasn't paying attention there. It's things like that that I think are more dangerous in my climbing. The hardest routes are where I've thought of every single thing. I'm pretty cautious in my approach and they usually feel safer on the whole. Yeah, yeah. it's the moments of... <laughs> Um, well, we're not paying attention, isn't it? Yeah, and and I think that's that's the case. For, uh, many climbers who have who are expert level climbers who have had accidents, it tends to be that s silly stuff like on simple terrain. Absenting off the end of a rope. Absenting off the end of the rope. Yeah, I've seen I got that. lower off the end of the rope. That was my worst ever climbing accident. Got lower off the end of a rope on a super easy route. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so. Again, sort of on this subject of giving yourself permission. Um, mm. well, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but so England, you look at a lot of crags and a lot of it's been done. It's hard to mm -hmm. find mm -hmm. gaps in the lines on the on the wall. Yes. Scotland, that is not the case. Mm -hmm, that's right, yes. Um, and obviously some crags, there's nothing mm -hmm. yet. You're obviously now a prolific new router. Yeah. When did you clock? Was it a conscious moment where you thought, hang on a minute, yeah, that was another defining moment for me. The first new route I ever did really actually changed my life completely. And not just in climbing, like um, in the sense of having, like, as you say, having permission to do anything uh, and realizing actually there's nothing stopping you from doing like a lot of things. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I was just on a local crag near Glasgow that only ha that had very few gaps, you know, climbs that hadn't been previously done and recorded. So I, was, I stood at the foot of the route with the climbing guidebook in my hand um, below a climb and I was like going along looking at the climbs and then just seeing one that was actually would have been the hardest route on the cliff and by that point I was reaching the point where I could do that and um, I was looking at this like oh that looks like the hardest thing that's here what route's that and looking at the guidebook and it's not in the guidebook and having that dissonance moment where it's like that means I can't do it oh wait a minute why can't I do it and that was the kind of shift in thinking <laughs> where I just started to to try it uh, and I never would have done that before why I can't tell you why <laughs> I really don't know it's like almost like a cultural thing that I grew up with it's like um you do claims that are in the guidebook or and and also how you progress through life you do things the way you're you're told to like you know you get a job you get a mortgage blah 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 blah, blah. um so I I do think that that played a role in other things I've done in my life since uh, including doing things like working for myself. I don't think I would have found that much more challenging to to, to be able to do that if I hadn't had that, that shift. Maybe it would have come at some point anyway, but it was great that, that it did happen for me then. It would have been about 18 or 19 or something. And then after that, you know, you just start to think of seeing new routes everywhere, in Scotland at least. And, there's, you know, I always like to say there's nothing special about new routes. I don't, I don't care about having my name associated with them or or any of any of that it's just the it's the opportunity um to to make it up as you go along to start with a kind of blank canvas of like you interpret the the cliff and go the way you want to do it and you you can't find out any details you have to discover them all for yourself and that is just a, a bit of a, a privilege really and an opportunity i find that quite inspiring because it's not a flag planting exercise no absolutely not yeah yeah and that, you know, I've done hundreds of new routes and like, 
these days, like I'm just so thankful if, um, especially with other mountain rope routes, if someone else cleans them <laughs> first, cause it's just hard graft. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I don't care about that aspect, whether I did another new route in the rest of my life, but the, the good thing about it is that discovery of the details it allows you to have just that other layer of adventure in, in rock climbing that otherwise you, you don't quite get. It just takes something away. For, even just psychologically, even even the very hardest routes where um, you know someone has climbed that route, but they're a world-class climber and it took them a long time. So it's like, well, can I climb that route? I'm not sure. But just the fact that someone has, it does it does take away, it does make you feel well, well, someone else could then, and maybe that could be me. And it gives you that bit more confidence. But when you're like, well, what about that line? What's up there? I don't know. Is it possible? <laughs> but I mean, Scotland, the, the, the untapped potential is so vast, isn't it? Yeah, Scot I mean, Scotland is a big place with a lot of mountains, a lot of rock. Even on my local mountain on Ben Nevis, there's not just like gaps between the roots, there's whole buttresses of rock that are really pretty big that no one's ever climbed on. Um, so yeah, even close to home. I mean, I'm thinking like, so I live just near Fort William and there's a glen out to the west of me, about 25 miles from my house. It's a bit remote, it's a bit, it takes a few hours to walk in there, but the whole glen has crags on both sides for two miles, nothing being done, nothing. So I've done like 20 odd new routes there now over the past couple of years. And it's a beautiful, beautiful glen, lovely place to spend time. And you just look around it and just like, you have to actually have blinkers. I have to have blinkers because you just, the first like half a dozen times I went there, it's like a complete headless chicken just running all around with no focus because like, I want to climb that and that and that and that. Um, so yeah, Scotland is a strange place in that there is so much to explore that's like kind of hidden in plain sight. It's in all these famous places that are well-known destinations. I mean, people come from all over the world to climb on Ben Nevis, for example, and yet there's all these new routes. Yeah, it's great. It's, uh, it's, it's really lucky. But also the, the wider world is also full of places to go and explore. Um, I, I'm, and a lot of them have been explored by people in the, in the past for thousands of years, but not so, for, not so much for rock climbing. So, yeah, uh, I think... I, I mean, I, I think rock, new routing is great and uh, I would totally recommend recommend it to other people. Um, yeah, it, it just forces you to approach climbing in a completely different way and I, I find it very rewarding. Are you still motivated by travelling overseas to climb? I am. I haven't, I haven't travelled for a while for various reasons. I mean, one reason is that I've just avoided taking flights. Simple as that. <laughs> And I, and I do have this, I'm still like, like all of us at the moment, we're trying to work out how to, how to live, <laughs> uh, given the problems that the world faces. So, and you know, at a basic level, you think, well, I live in a country full of mountains, it's full of great new routes that would keep me going for the rest of my life. And what am I going to do, flying a plane around the world to go and climb somewhere else? Mm. It's kind of tricky to justify that. <laughs> it is. Not saying I would never fly anywhere again, but I've not flown anywhere for several years now. Um, and I, I don't say that like, oh, like that's great and everyone should do that. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't mean that. Um, but yeah, it's just, I just feel like, well, I've got so much on, on my doorstep. And I also just, 
you know, everyone's lifestyle's changed a lot in the last couple of years and mine's evolved as well. So one thing I've always, I've been trying to do for 10 years, I've got a 10 year old daughter, is trying to fit my lifestyle of, of climbing into a family life as well. So I live in the mountains, I go off for the day, climb in a place that feels remote, feels adventurous, on things I, places I really love being, and yet then I come home to my family. And that lifestyle works really well. So sometimes I actually feel like I have to sort of tear myself away from that to go and do something else. Yeah, I do love going on trips, um, but I've also gone on a lot as well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm still grappling with how, of how to deal with that in the future. Do you think that's affected by having a daughter? Um, possibly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's a bit like the discussion that uh, around safety, where it's like, well, is it affected by having having a daughter? Well, yes, but all it does is redouble um, the same sort of thoughts and strategies that you were hopefully having anyway. You know. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, I you know I've become a dad within the last year, and mm-hmm. a few people have said to me, "Has it changed your approach to risk?" And I know it's the age old question, but my answer is, well, not really, because I've never wanted to get hurt anyway. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've always been keen on staying alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean. It, for as far as risk goes, it, it just would change how I would do certain things. Like I would have a bit more time and a bit more rigor over the simple stuff that's likely to cause an accident. Like you know, if I'm if I'm abseiling off something, I just like I'd put in that extra piece rather than not stuff like that. Just belt and braces safety, um, and maybe like for the most dangerous things that that I do, um, you would either wait longer to either come back when you could do it less without so much danger because it's, it's all potential danger it's only dangerous the rock climbs if you fall off so you can come back with better form and then do it safely or in mountaineering you can come back when the avalanche conditions are different and move across that slope safely so some of it's just like it's not like you don't do the thing it's just that you have to wait to the right moment and you maybe just have to wait a bit longer um but as far as like uh the responsibility of how you how you live generally well god i mean it's that's it's a very very difficult uh thing to do well just, and i'm certainly trying to to do my best and and think about it a lot um but i'm not really sure how to proceed with that <laughs> yeah and i'm i'm so i'm going to yeah. potentially move into contentious territory now but mm-hmm. how important i can try and ask it sensitively though so we can be careful but how important is it to you that your daughter lives an adventurous life and is given that chance to enjoy nature. I, I just think um, an, an, an adventurous life, and that can take so many different forms, um, that is life to me. <laughs> and so I, I just think it's, it's really essential, um, important that uh, any, any young person would have the opportunity to do that and have as much adventure of any type they want as 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 they can or as they as they want to to have yeah yeah um and and it's a tricky one this issue of traveling specifically because i think traveling the world is important it does it does have many important aspects of helping to understand other people um and make the whole world function better i've i've traveled to some countries where the people don't travel to other countries and 
it stands out quite a lot, <laughs> the lack of understanding of other cultures. Yeah. It's so difficult, isn't it? Like, that's it. I'm desperate for my daughter to have the chance to travel because mm-hmm. of what it will do to her as a person. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know it's been so formative for me, but I don't want... It's easy for me to say because I've had those experiences, mm-hmm. you know, that privilege, but at cost to the world, at, yes. you know, yes. that privilege that she has that most don't. Yeah. But everything we do has an impact. <laughs> so I... I don't think we can we can live without having any impact. Um, so any you know any any life any person or whatever um, is is it's like sort of drawing if you like from the planet, but has the opportunity to do some good as well, and hopefully the balance works out in uh, favorably. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, for for a, a lot of aspects of our lifestyle, it does not. Um, but what can we do apart from improve that? Yeah. yeah. And that's a nice sort of accidental segue into the other thing I really wanted to talk about, which is the new film mm. and the messaging behind it and yes. your inspiration for it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we're at the Kendall Mount Festival just now. I'm showing a film this weekend that I made with the John Muir Trust, which I'm sure that many people will know as an environmental organisation. And one of the things that they do is they, they buy up bits of Scottish land, Scottish mountains, um, and try and try and look after them, maintain them as they are. You know, at very least, you know, uh, stem any uh, degradation of those ecosystems which are kind of fragile, um, and protect them and try and enhance them as well. Um, so the film that that I made is kind of on two levels. On one level, it's a film about me going to a place I know well, Glen Evis, and climbing a piece of rock, climbing a new route. But it's also about trees. So um, if, if folk listening have never been to Glen Nevis, please go there. It's a very, very beautiful place. <laughs> um, the upper end of Glen Nevis is lovely, steep, wooded hillsides. Ben Nevis on one side, the Mamors on the other. And you walk through this beautiful gorge uh, called the Steel Gorge. And there's a lovely waterfall at the back of that. And, you know, I, I remember going there with my wife when I was 17 I didn't know that all of that lovely scenery was there. All I knew that it was there was a hard rock climb I wanted to do. And I remember going there and just being like, wow, this place is beautiful. And, you know, of course, ended up living there and it becoming my backyard. Um, but on w- one of the hills there, on the slopes of the Glen, was a part of the Glen I'd never really been to. Uh, there's, there's a lot of um, steep sort of slopes, but not many cliffs. So it's just not somewhere I've really visited. There is one cliff, though, which has this big horizontal roof where you know, huge boulders falling out. And I knew that there was an aid climb that had been done in the past where uh, climbers 50 years ago had gone and climbed across the roof by just by hammering in pegs um, and, and pulling up on them and, and climbing through the roof in that climbing style. And so that was in 1971. Um, and that's what people did back then. If, if climbs were too hard... They would hammer in pegs and climb up the pegs. And then in the sort of decade after that, rock climbing moved on to free climbing where you do use the protection to stop you in a fall, but you're using your hands and feet free climbing uh, to, to actually climb the cliff. Uh, so many rock climbing challenges in that time were to make free ascents of previous eight climbs. So this is this is one of them. And 
and I thought I would go up there. But it's amazing this this spot in the glen because where you have to move on to this slope where this big roof is, the whole flora underneath your feet completely changes. The slope angle is steep enough that you can't walk on it, but it's not a cliff. So you have to sort of scramble and it's you immediately move from slopes of cropped grass to deep heather, like you're floundering in this deep heather. But all the ledges are covered in these strange little birch trees, junipers, willows, and all sorts of other things that you just don't recognise anywhere in the glen. And also, you know, I've spent 20 years climbing Glen Nevis. I really appreciate the woodland there and I love it. And I know it really, really well. And you go there and I'm like, this place is completely different. Um, and you start to think, well, why is that? <laughs> uh, and, and I wondered, like, is it really just down to uh, deer and sheep eating those trees? And essentially it is. <laughs> so in this film, I start off trying to climb this climb, and I do climb the climb. But in the process, I, I just took people on a journey with me saying, why is this little bit of slope look so different from everywhere else? Should other parts of the hills look like this? And what's changed? Yeah, and so I explored that, and it is really just to do with deer and sheep, and but obviously go a layer below that and think, well, why are the hills managed like that? I spoke to various ecologists and people who have followed um, land land ownership and land reform in Scotland over uh, the last few centuries, and it does seem to be in the Highlands that when Queen Victoria bought Balmoral Estate, everything changed in the Highlands. That started the fashion of deer shooting being a, a thing. And it then followed that other wealthy businessmen from, from around the UK and the rest of the world bought up large tracts of land in the Highlands for the same purpose. And basically the Highlands became a big deer shooting park. <laughs> and so the numbers of deer really exploded. Um, and the, the, the woodlands just couldn't regenerate. So a lot of these areas of quite high woodland that normally exist above the main tree line, where you get these dwarf trees that can handle being quite high up in the hills, that really should be on many Scottish mountains, just can't, they just can't grow. They're just nibbled back by herbivores just passing through all the time. Um, but they're like anything in ecology, you, you peel off one layer and you get to another layer of complexity. It's a very complex picture. It does one, one question I keep coming back to is large herbivores have walked the earth for a long, long time. <laughs> and one of my other interests is in human nutrition and, uh, and in physiology, human physiology. So I've thought a lot about um, human physiology, what food we're adapted to eating, um, how that fits into ecology, how that fitted into um, our whole development as a species. And when you start to look at the, the scientific data on that, you see that things like in many uh, northern hemisphere countries like the US and in Europe, um, around like 10 odd thousand years ago, the average size of mammals was 10 times higher than it is today. <laughs> so in America, in the Americas, the average size of a mammal these days is like 10 kilos, it used to be 100 kilos. Wow. <laughs> um, and around 10,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago, uh, many, many huge species 
of animal were, were made extinct very quickly. So th these uh, mountain grasslands and forests evolved with very large animals on them, presumably with quite a large biomass. That's a lot of grass and trees that need to be eaten to support that biomass. So why is it then that a few deer now are such a problem? So it just seems quite complicated. It seems like if many of the forests in Scotland and the Highlands had not been cut down in the first place, then perhaps such high numbers of deer may not be such a problem. And that's unclear, but that's at least plausible. So th but then you think, well, well, what do we do now? It does seem that um, in order to allow that woodland to regenerate, then the deer numbers have to come down at least temporarily. <laughs> But the, 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 the biggest block to all regeneration and land reform in Scotland is that it's the same old problem of very rich, rich landowners uh, still holding those huge estates that are just mm -hmm. huge areas of the hills and using them for entertainment, for, for shooting. Uh, to what extent do you, I really mean, you know, just follow your opinion on this, um, is it that there's no natural predators you know, we've, we've removed the woodland and we've removed the predators. There's, there are natural predators, which are us. Oh, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> because people often, people often say this and, like, you know, it's like there should be lynx and wolves and bears. That's true. They were also natural predators. But humans have, all, have also been the natural predators of herbivores and many other animals for a long, long time. And we still are acting as predators by shooting them, but not in the way we would normally do. Um, so now we manage them in a much more organised way. Unfortunately, it's the priorities that are wrong in the management, in, in places anyway. Yeah, I think that's the problem. So yes, there aren't any lynx and wolves and bears, and they would control the, the problem, both by uh, keeping a, a check on the numbers of, of herbivores overgrazing the hills, um, and also by controlling the way they move around that's also critical. So you, the, uh, a given area of land can support more animals if they're all herded into one spot in a mob. That's why they form a herd. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that amazing, um, you, you must have, um, How Wolves Change Rivers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That short piece. Yeah, I mean, that sums it up really well for me. And that changed my perception of the whole of Britain, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously it's a piece about Yellowstone, but that we... I really struggled with it for a while because these places, the Lake District, the Scottish Highlands that I'd always thought were beautiful, mm -hmm. I suddenly saw them as these ruined, barren landscapes yes. that we destroyed. And yes, yes. It's actually taken years to regain, well, finding beauty in them, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I know, it, 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 like, how you view, like, the, the mountains and um, the, the problems with them, it, it just depends on your perspective. Like, I think if you're... If you're thinking about trees, which is great, then you might think of the absence of trees as being like, there's a desert. The Scot People say like the Scottish Highlands are a desert. But if you're thinking about the ecosystem that exists below the soil level or even in the grasslands, then grasslands in the Highlands are actually quite rich ecosystems in places. So yes, it's always like you've got to sort of, when, when, I mean, I don't, I'm not an ecologist and I'm just learning about all this stuff really from quite a naive starting place. Um, but it just strikes me that, you know, you get drawn into the, the detail on one aspect, but you always have to keep standing right back to the 30,000 view 
and thinking of how it all, how it all fits together. But one, so there's like a, you know, a big discussion at the moment, which is becoming more and more popular, which is great, which is about rewilding in the Highlands. Um, but there's also problems with it. Uh, one problem with, with it in my mind is that it's seen as like we stand back and let the ecosystem get on with it. But that just doesn't seem quite right to me. I think we also have a place in the ecosystem. And, and, and we also have a place as the predator. We have been apex predators in the ecosystems throughout our evolution. And actually, it's now we're moving away from that. And maybe we should rethink that or at least revisit it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you're very welcome to disagree with me here. Mm. But I, I um, have heated conversations with some of my closest friends about this. But... I don't think that stepping back from nature is a good idea for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. We need to function as part of it. Also, to be really cheesy, we are nature. Yes. The literal manifestation of yeah. this world. We're, we're, we're the only sentient creatures. Yeah. And I think we need to act as custodians of yes. it. Yes. And yeah. you know much more about this than me. But if we just remove ourselves from a landscape, we're just letting... And I know I've visited Chernobyl and seen it. I mean, mm -hmm. we're just... Mm -hmm that landscape will not become what it was or what it should be without further human intervention. Yes, that's right. It's got to be actively managed, yeah. Especially when a lot of the natural processes have been affected or destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so they do have to be restored. And and that's really tough. Uh, it's, a, it's a big, big challenge uh, to not only... You have to understand the ecosystem to start with, which in itself is a huge challenge. And then you've got to maintain the right priorities and the decisions you make and that's still so so difficult because i mean i see i was looking at on the internet the other week there and seeing developments and announcements from companies coming through that are acting as consultants for uh, rewilding that's their stated purpose but they're acting to increase the profits of the existing landowners so it's all still centered around profit and um, I mean, that might be fine. That, I know that that can sometimes be a vehicle to make things happen. However, it often <laughs> causes problems too. So I certainly don't have all the answers uh, on this, but... <laughs> I was going to ask you the million dollar question. What's that? Well, what do you think the answer is? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know is, is, the, is the straight answer. But um, I think possibly a, a good start would be um, the land in Scotland or in general being owned by more people, <laughs> um, especially the people who live there. That, that seems to make more sense to me. I think that tends to keep the priorities and the decision-making uh, on closer to the right track, not always on the right track, but it's maybe, it's maybe, a, maybe an improvement on um, someone that makes billions selling fast fashion and then buys a Scottish mountain estate and says, okay, we'll keep people off it and plant a forest there. I wonder who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, I'm not necessarily being critical, but I'm just not sure. I'm just, I don't, I don't know if that's a very secure way to proceed for the next thousand years, you know? No, agreed. Yeah. And if it, there's that level of, I think if we have ownership of something, we're more likely to protect it. And yes, it's our removal yes. from nature yeah. and our disconnect that is, mm. yeah. anyway. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think of before the Highland clearances, when the glens were a lot, you still see the evidence if you walk through the hills of, 
uh, all of these settlements that we're on in all these now empty glens, empty apart from deer. <laughs> um, so there were people in all these places before. And, um, you know, then you go back even further to when Scotland was uh, ruled by di different clans. And, you know, not that that was a great time for, for Scotland. <laughs> there was plenty of bloodshed, but... Um, you know, they were like small independent groups that were looking after their own ecosystems and, and um, in, in a reasonably sustainable way from the point of view of the landscape. Yeah. 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 Very um, interesting. So I think that would be a, a good place, like uh, the breakup of um, big corporate ownership that's always focused on profit and can make huge sweeping decisions uh, that are not always in interest. So that would be, that'd be one thing. Um, I think valuing soil is another important thing. Soil gives us everything. We are not, we cannot function without it. We need it for food. We need food to eat. And no matter what food we eat, we need soil for that. Um, and the way food is produced at the moment is very destructive to soil. And that it goes for many types of agriculture. Often people think of one type or another as being a problem, but actually almost all types of agriculture are, are problematic. And until that becomes a major priority, like I worry about that more than more than climate change, actually, and more than anything. Um, I think it's a more uh, actually a more urgent problem. <laughs> I agree well. with you, yeah. actually, and I think that that it's because of the ripple effect. Whether or not I think it's a bigger problem, I think it's 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 something somebody can do that is real. Is mm -hmm. to start eating locally, growing locally growing at home and mm -hmm. you are repairing the soil by growing your own food yes yes and yeah. engaging with that yeah soil and that yeah yeah so yeah for for individual people i think good questions to ask is what grows where i live and what does my food eat yeah <laughs> yeah what does my food eat in terms of um in terms of actual whole foods or in terms of nutrients and does that does that make sense like I, I mean, I, th I think about nutrition a lot and um, one of the things that actually concerns me most about what I eat is if a, if a field has been ploughed to make that food because that just by ploughing, that releases a lot of carbon directly into the atmosphere from the get-go. But also that soil then washes away and it also destroys a lot of the life that exists below the surface, which is so crucial. So that, like, I, I, really, I really worry about and the fertilizer that's required to make that food as well. I mean, the basis of that still comes from fossil fuels. Um, and, you know, both the soil and the fertilizer ends up in the river and the mm. sea and has huge, huge problems. So um, I, th I think certainly for, for, for Scotland, um, we have mountains, which we also have lowlands as well, which are suitable for many different types of agriculture. Interestingly, I've, I, other ecologists that I've spoken to or, or made films with have said, yes, we should, we should plant more trees, but actually if we're serious about planting trees, we should plant trees in the lowlands <laughs> where they grow quickly <laughs> on these flat, fertile soils and the, the mountains are actually not quite so good. Well, there's all sorts um, of other things around that, like the peat district. Part of the problem with the peat is that the water runoff, it used to be... Um, less of a problem because mm -hmm. the forests were holding the peat on the tops yes yeah. yes and now yeah. they've all gone so the mm. peat just washes away yeah yeah that's right God, yeah. it's complicated yeah but I, I do think that um 
So the, the, I think that those are some important questions and, and principles that are pretty basic, really. Uh, but it's it's going to it's going to take governments uh, to to make those changes because at the moment that's what's really all the ecologists I spoke to for this film that I've made just now and and you know follow online follow discussions all the time they all say it's it has to come from quite high up legislation to change the pattern I mean it does seem like the power even if things like the House of Lords will just block block changes because of the vested interests mm. go right to there and mm. that's a huge huge issue and one thing i didn't get into in my film which is another completely separate question is then will scotland specifically um has to think well what does it do in the like it is it ever going to be free of the House of Lords? There is maybe one route to that. Yeah, no, I know. And I, you're very welcome to go there if you want to. Yeah. We've I mean, talked I, about that before. We have, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying that, that that's, that's necessarily the right way, but um, uh, I, I, I just kind of think, well, how can the political system uh, change to such a degree without some sort of major upheaval of one sort or another? You know, it can either be war <laughs> or um, something crazy like that that's very undesirable. Um, so if there's an opportunity there to make major systemic change, where you start from scratch and you think like, well, okay, if we were to design a, a system for, from the ground up for the modern world, knowing what we know now about how um, corporates work, how interests work, how the world works these days... Um, and all the problems that we face now that we didn't have when the House of Lords was invented, <laughs> yeah. then we would maybe do things quite differently. So if there's an opportunity to actually do that, then potentially that could be a, a good a good one to take. I don't know. I don't know. You've I, 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 I didn't get into that in, in, in my film at all. I stuck to just uh, one one corner of the, the subject. The shy rock climber from in from Glasgow has become a political anarchist over the <laughs> course of his travel. And I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, I don't think I've, have I ever even been to a protest. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Hey, so I think you've answered the first question I'm going to ask you. But, um, I asked two people. Uh, I ask everybody two questions at the end of every interview. Mm -hmm. um, interpret them as you see fit. But mm -hmm. what scares you? Uh, well, one thing that scares me actually is being physically incapacitated. <laughs> uh, I really, really love the feeling of being able, being able to go out into the mountains and climb over rock and feel good doing it. I just get so much from that every, every day. And not just the actual sense of doing it, but also the feeling that I could do it. At that that feeling of capability. It's a, a it's a funny thing. I don't even know why I feel it. I don't know if it's just a really deep, very deep kind of human thing to feel. But just like if I see a, a mountain and just just even think, I could go up that if I wanted to. But also the ability to actually do that and and to feel good while I'm doing it. I love I, I love the feeling of taking a hold and feeling like I can pull hard on that hold, and um, and just feel, feeling strong and fast in the mountains. So. The feeling of that and uh, not being there is, is scary to me. And uh, I thought about that a lot because I've had a lot of injuries to get over. Um, and thankfully, I'm still pretty functional. Uh, and yeah, I still feel, still feel pretty good, pretty healthy. 
a so, few bits fused here and there. Yeah, so long, long may that long may that continue. I can still do that. What else scares me? I don't know. I I, I don't think a lot of things. I don't. I don't. Am I really scared of things? I mean, my email inbox. <laughs> I'm scared of that. <laughs> yeah, try and avoid that where possible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of, that's that's one a of the scariest one. things. <laughs> yeah. Um, what brings you hope? What brings me hope? Um, just seeing motivation, motivation and energy from from anyone. Often it comes from young people, um, so they they have fresh energy and uh, and the sense that you can you can do things. Um, the resilience of of humans and the resilience of yeah the human body. I mean, one one aspect that we've not really talked about is like, um, I say, I mean, I, my education was in sports science and physiology, and 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 laterally in, in nutrition, and um, I've seen in myself like the amazing things. You, if you get these things right, like which is exposure to environmental cues, which basically comes down to sleep, exercise, and diet. If you get those ingredients right, what your body can achieve is just amazing and that never failed to surprise me uh, so like I'm, I'm 43 um, like I say I've had a lot of battle scars and it actually I, I am amazed at what my body can do now and how much how much more capable it is than when I was 23 um, that makes me feel really good um, so that, that gives me a lot of hope yeah I mean just to give an example so we're in the Lake District uh, a friend of mine, Neil Gresham, just did a very hard rock climb just up the road. He's nine or ten years older than me. And then another friend, Steve, did the second cent of that climb. You know, it's like the hardest rock climb in England. He's ten year, years older than me. So I'd like to be the youngest person to do that route. The first person not in their fifties to climb that. <laughs> <laughs> so that that that's that kind of thing makes me like just to see them, to see like when you look at those two guys, I was actually at on the, the climb with them in September there. And they're just like the picture of health. They're so strong and so fit um, in their 50s. And actually, knowing Neil, I remember seeing him. In fact, that was another defining moment for me. I remember seeing him training in Glasgow Climbing Centre when I was like in my teens, 17 maybe. And uh, he, another friend had showed him some climbs on the bouldering wall. And I remember looking across the climbing wall and seeing him trying these climbs, and they were ones that I I knew, um, and had done. And I remember watching him falling off these climbs and going, "I can do it." That's like my part of my warm up, mm. and being like, "Wow, he's like a really good climber, but he's not that strong." And I, I really learned a lot from that. And, and you know, as a reminder, it's not all, rock climbing has a wide range of skills. It's a technical sport. So that was a lesson I had there. But then to see the same guy 20 odd years later, more than that, 25 years later, and he's so much stronger and fitter than he was at that time. That's brilliant. Yeah. Also with decades of experience to match the strength. Well, yeah. And, and how to look after your body. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Brilliant. Leave it there. <laughs> Thanks very much. Fantastic. That's ace. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Dave and gain access to his films and books at davemcleod.com. The podcast is a Cold House production and is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Orla Omori and Alex Hall. 
You can keep up to date on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can email info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. 